Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see all of you here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I had the privilege this morning of getting to preach the Word, which I'm looking forward to. Now, if this is your first time here with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. Of course, we'll be in God's Word. We're in Psalm 50, one-third of the way through the Psalter. Can you believe it already? That's great. Let's turn to God's Word. Psalm 50, the first Psalm of Asaph that we will study. We will see a lot more in the next book. This is a long psalm and a heavy psalm. I feel like I need to warn you. Our pride is going to take a major hit today. We need to pray that God would help us to receive it well. So let's read God's word and then we will pray just that. Psalm 50, verses 1 to 23. A psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay charges before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, 
I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge before you that heavens are your throne and the earth is your footstool. There is no house we could build for you because all things are yours and they were made by your sovereign and righteous hand. Father, we also rejoice when we remember that the one to whom you look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. Father, give us humble hearts today. Help us to receive this rebuke even with gratitude, knowing that you are a good father and you are calling us to honor you with our lives and you are doing it for our good. pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, around the time of World War II, C.S. Lewis wrote an article, an essay, entitled God in the Dock. You might have heard of it. It's actually a title of one of his books as well that was published in the 1970s. And it has that article in it, and it's also the title of the book. There's a lot of great articles in there about theology and ethics. If you're a big apologetics fan, that's a good read to have. But this idea of God in the dock has been running through my mind all week because it's the exact opposite of Psalm 50. You see, C.S. Lewis believed that the Enlightenment fundamentally changed the way that our world thinks about God, changed the way that you and I even think and speak about God. He said before the Enlightenment, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. Before the Enlightenment, God was the judge. And man was in the dock, or on trial. That's what in the dock means. But after the Enlightenment, the roles were reversed. Man is now the judge, and God is in the dock. And Lewis says, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, then man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that now man is on the bench and God is in the dock. It's the way our world thinks, isn't it? Constantly putting the Lord on trial. Saying things like, look, if there is a merciful and holy and just God out there, then where in the world is he? Why doesn't he speak up? This world is a mess Seems like a God like that would have a lot to answer for. You know, we like to think as believers we're above these kind of temptations, that we know better. We, we have God's word, we have the covenant, we've been taught the truth. How many of us are tempted to put God on trial when sufferings come? How many of us are tempted to go well beyond the laments and a lot of the psalms we've been reading? To say to our Lord and King, Lord, you owe me an explanation. You owe me a reason for all this mess. You promise to be faithful. You promise to provide. You promise to care for me and love me. But you have failed. You have come up short. You've forgotten me. I've suffered far too long. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably think those things a lot more than we'd like to admit. And I think most of us 
are far more inclined to throw those accusations on God than to turn around and throw them on ourselves. See, it's way easier to shine the spotlight on God and think, how could you, than to shine it on ourselves and think, how could I? To put our own faith, our own Christian life in the dock. Maybe we don't do it because we're afraid of what we might find or what we might not find. Maybe we're afraid because, as Christian says in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that our faith might not stand a trial by God's law. That's exactly what we have today in Psalm 50. God turns the tables on the world, on us, and he puts his own covenant people in the dock. He puts their own covenant faithfulness on trial, which sounds terrifying if we admit it. But God is doing this as a loving, heavenly Father because He's not just going to do that to destroy us, which He has every right to do. He's going to do that to correct us, to rebuke us, to change our thinking and our living, to change the way we think about Him, our theology, and our practice. Essentially what I believe God is saying in this psalm is, I am not like you. I'm not dependent like you. I'm not sinful like you. I am the Lord. Therefore, you need to honor me. You need to trust me. You need to serve me and obey me with thankful hearts. God is saying, I am not like you. So you need to honor me with grateful obedience. That's what God wants from us. What he's calling us to here. Now, I'm sure you probably noticed the heavy and courtroom-like language throughout this psalm. This is a lot like a trial. And there are really three phases in this trial that I want to point out to you. The first phase is the court summons. The court summons in verses 1 through 6. And the second one is God rebuking his covenant keepers, those that say that they're his. That's verses 7 through 15. And then lastly, thirdly, it's God rebuking his covenant breakers from verse 16 to the end of the psalm. So first, let's look at the glorious court summons, which really shines a spotlight on the glory of our God. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this, The Mighty One, God the Lord. Let's stop there because, believe it or not, there is a ton to unpack in those three titles alone. Just like a bailiff in a modern-day courtroom says, All rise. Now the honorable judge so-and-so is here. Let the trial begin. Court is in session. Asaph here is functioning like the bailiff, announcing the arrival of the judge. And instead of saying just your honor, he gives three titles, three names for God that show us how glorious he is. He first says he's the mighty one and God. Those two names, the first two, really emphasizes God's authority. And majesty, he is the judge of the universe because he's the God that made the universe. He created everything and sustains everything. He owns this world, which gives him the right to do whatever he wants, especially to act as the judge over it. But the third name is really interesting. The third name is the Lord. Or as you can see, it's in all caps, which many of us might remember. That's the covenant name Yahweh. This is an emphasis of God's transcendence and also God's imminence, his closeness to us. 
This reminds us that this is the great I am, the independent one, the glorious one, the self-sustaining God over all. But he's also the God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of our fathers. He's high and lifted up, but also draws near to the brokenhearted. Draws near to those, like I said in the beginning, who are humble and contrite in spirit. Just in these three names alone, we're already dealing with a glorious judge. And Asaph's just getting started. Look at verse 2. Out of Zion, been talking a lot about that lately. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, I think what Asaph is actually doing here is he's drawing our attention back to the context. We've been talking a lot about Zion in the last few Psalms, all the way back since Psalm 46. And if you remember, Zion is the place where God's glory is put on display. It's not just a place, it's a people. It's a city, but it's also his church. And God displays his glory by sending his son the first time to redeem that people. That's where he displays his glory and his perfection. But now it seems God is coming out of Zion. The judge here is coming out of Zion to do what? To judge the world. To establish justice. Not just among his people. That's where he starts as we see here. Through the entire earth. Verse 3. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. Asaph, I believe here, is drawing us to the foot of Mount Sinai. He's bringing us back to Exodus 19 and 20. I mean, this is what happened every time God shows up. There's this tempest and and fire and earthquakes. This is what happens when God shows up in this world. When God descends on that mountain. But why would Asaph be drawing us back to Mount Sinai? Because that's the place where God's covenant people entered into a covenant with God and took vows of covenant faithfulness. It's also the place where they received the law. And God is going to flip that around and try his people based on that law, based on those covenant promises. I think Asaph's actually even upping it even more because he's not just saying he's the supreme power in the universe. No, he is a devouring, consuming fire. This God has come to destroy, to judge. I hope you can see what Asaph is doing. I hope you can see he's piling up names and images of God, impressing upon us the seriousness of this summons. He's saying, look, there's no greater judge. There's no higher authority there. There is no greater court to appeal to. There's no court beyond this one that you can appeal to if you don't like the judgments. This God, this Lord, has the right to be the judge because he created the world and sustains the world. But he doesn't just have the right to judge these people, his own covenant people. He also has the character to judge them. He's not just the God who does righteous things or dispenses righteousness or just made the standard of righteousness. He is righteous. He is holy and just. He is the standard, which also make his judgments final. They have eternal consequences. You see, the judge that is summoning 
makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It really ups the stakes on the seriousness of this because who summons us really matters. But we know that too, don't we? Kids, you learn that actually from a very young age, don't you? You know, as a kid, even you know this, that when mom and dad says, come here, I need to talk to you, it's different than when grandma and grandpa say, come here, I need to talk to you, right? And nothing against grandma and grandpa, they love you, your parents love you, but there's a different level of seriousness when your parents say, come here, I need to talk to you, especially when they use your middle name, right? Then you know you are in trouble. Well, this is our glorious God summoning us, saying, come here, I need to talk to you. It doesn't get more serious than this. And the seriousness is impressed upon us even more by realizing who is being summoned, or whom, probably is a better way of saying that. Look at verse 1 again as we begin to see the witnesses to this trial. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons who? The earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting. God is summoning people everywhere. If the sun shines on you, you're expected to be there. Yes, even sinful nations, sinful people, objects of wrath, enemies of God. You are called to be there to witness what God is about to do. But he doesn't just call the earth. Look down at verse 4. He says he calls to the heavens above and to the earth. This is a global, this is a creation summons. Angels and saints dead and alive come to see what your God will do. Everybody come. But we haven't seen the defendants yet. Who is on trial? Verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And who are they? Verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones. Who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That's the Sinai we just talked about. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Selah. Now I don't know if this is a bit startling to you. I don't know if you go the same place my mind goes. When I read the description of the faithful ones. The ones in covenant. I think why are these people being judged? These are the faithful ones. Shouldn't the nations be judged? The ones that set themselves against God and against his anointed in Psalm 2, they're the ones that need to be judged, right? Christ took my judgment. He paid it all. We sing that constantly. Why are we being judged? That doesn't seem right. Well, so in one sense, yes, Christ did take our judgment, the final judgment that we owe because of our sin. He took the wrath upon himself. That's what makes us a part of God's people to begin with. That's what truly brings us into the community of Zion. But in another sense, that does not mean that God's judgment is done with us. We are saved from the wrath of God and the final judgment of hell because of Christ. But God is judging us and constantly judging us for discipline, for correction, all the time. And he will judge us even in the end for every careless word that we say. For eternal words as well. God is constantly judging his people throughout scripture. We see that in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30 to 32, Isaiah 1, Micah 6. It's all over the place. And as Peter reminds us, 1 Peter 4, 17, this summarizes this entire psalm. Judgment will begin in the household of God. 
I know instinctively we like to push back against that. We like to think, like our world, that all judgment is bad. Every kind of judgment or discrimination is bad. It's like the one sin that's left. The one thing you can't do as a human being is judge. You can't discriminate for any reason. You can't judge. That's the worst evil there is in this world. Unless, of course, you're judging the judgers, the judgmental, right? We're so inconsistent and so ridiculous that we think that these things are okay. We make judgments all the time, don't we? The statement isn't don't judge. It's make good judgments. Make them according to God's law. But here's the amazing thing. We can make bad and good judgments, but not God. God's judgments are never bad. They're never wrong. They're never unjust. They're always perfect and righteous. And it may feel and seem like terrible news to sinners like us, to those that are sinners in Adam and those even his saints who have the remnants of our sinful flesh left, but that doesn't make it wrong. It's still good. And because God is for us in Christ, His judgment, his discipline is actually a sign of his love. Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, God is treating you as sons. In verse 11 in Hebrews 12, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We need to fight the lies of this world, to think that this is wrong. This is out of bounds. God shouldn't judge us like this. This is unloving. We need to even get to the place where we have gratitude towards God for calling our sin out and not leaving us in sin. That's a sign of his love. Now before the rebukes actually begin, let me point to Christ for a second in maybe an unexpected way. I know we're probably used to, now 50 psalms in, hearing Christ's priestly voice in the psalm, especially. We like to hear those gospel presentations where Jesus has lived and died for us. He's rose from the dead and ascended on high. Now he intercedes for us as our sympathetic high priest. I'm so thankful you're used to hearing that. And so glad that most of you are eager to hear that. If we don't get there, please kick us out of this pulpit. We need to get there. But I do fear at times. We're so used to hearing the priestly voice of Jesus in the psalm, we forget he has two other offices. He's not just our priest. He's our prophet and king. And in this psalm, he speaks from both of those offices as well. Jesus is the king, verse 2, that comes out of Zion. He is the perfection of beauty. He is the God that shines forth in judgment. He's the mighty one in verse 1, and the consuming fire and the terrible tempest in verse 3. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's part of his kingly role. I know we love Jesus meek and mild. Jesus, let the little children come to me. You realize in Revelation, he has blood-stained robes from stomping on people. That's the image of Jesus we get there. He is a righteous king. And he will come in judgment just like that. And these are his prophetic words as well. Prophecy doesn't just mean he's foretelling the future. He's also speaking the truth. And this is Jesus rebuking his people as their king and prophet. This is a husband 
correcting his wayward bride. Yes, please hear Jesus' priestly voice in the Psalms, but don't forget, he's also your king and your prophet. You need to treat these words with that authority. So what does our prophet, priest, and king say to us, his covenant people? After his summons, he rebukes his covenant keepers. He rebukes the covenant keepers. And first, we've already seen who these covenant keepers were in verse 5. My faithful ones, those who God covenanted with. But now look at verse 7 as the description continues. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. See what he's saying here? These are God's people. Israel, these are his covenant people. They're the ones trying to honor God with their lives, trying to do his will. They're even the ones who consistently worship God, who bring sacrifices that God accepts. Look at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Now again, we think, well, what's the problem here? If these people are worshiping God, they're going to church, they're obeying God, God seems to be accepting their sacrifices, why do they need to be rebuked? Well, because the issue isn't primarily with their practice. God will deal with that too. But their fundamental issue here is their theology. Their thinking. That's at the root of their problem. So that's where God goes first. He confronts them. He rebukes their theology in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. God is withholding worship. This is a serious thing. This is scary to think about. Why is he doing this? Verse 10, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. You see what God is saying here? He's saying, do you think I need those animals? Do you think I need your sacrifices? Look around. I have plenty of resources. Every animal you see is mine. And and you know what? Every animal you don't see is still mine. And you know what? If I wanted more animals, I wouldn't come to you. I can just make some more and create some more anytime I want. You're not giving me anything. You're not adding to me by giving me these sacrifices. You're just returning what already rightfully belongs to me. God say, no, I'm not like you. I don't have needs like you. In fact, I don't have needs at all outside of myself. Verse 12, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. You're the last person I would come to. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now, I hope you know God doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a stomach and appetite to even eat these types of things. This is God speaking baby talk to us. Using human language, personification to get his point across. And what's his point? I am not dependent. I have no appetites. I have no defects. I have no imperfections or any needs outside of myself. I have no obligations to anyone. I don't owe anyone anything. In fact, when you bring your sacrifices to me, I don't even need to say thank you. 
because it doesn't enrich me in any way. It doesn't make me a better God. I'm already perfect. I don't need your service. I don't need your sacrifice. I don't need your worship. And guess what? If I did, if I needed the blood and the meat of those bulls and goats, I'd be like every other false god around you. I'd be like all those other gods who you can manipulate and put in your debt so that they can pay you back. But I'm not that God. I am independent. I am self-sufficient. I am transcendent. I am, I am. Or as Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. He's the fountain of everything in creation, which makes everything else dependent but him. Everything else is dependent on him. As Acts 17 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Why not? As though he needed anything. God has no needs. I'm not like you. God's saying, look, I don't need you, but you need me. You need me for atonement. You need me for protection. You need me for provision. You need me, in fact, for life and breath and all things. It's you, my people, that have the need. You need this worship, not me. But you've forgotten this. You've turned into legalists. You've turned into formalists. You're offering sacrifices. You're going through the motions. And you're thinking in your mind that now you've accomplished something where I owe you. Where I'm in your debt. That can't be the case. Oh, there's a lot for us to learn here. About serving God. Even about coming to church. You realize, right, that God doesn't need you here. He commands us to worship. But that's not because he has a need. That's because we have a need. He doesn't need our worship, our singing. He doesn't need us to throw money in the offering to accomplish his goals. He doesn't even need us to preach or proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth to save people. He could probably do it way faster and easier without us, to be honest. God doesn't need us for any of those things. And you might think, well, you know what? That's ridiculous. I don't think this way. I never think that I'm putting God in my debt. Really? Really? What's your instinct when suffering comes? What's your instinct when things get hard? Is it God is in this? Has God's gotten me through? He's been faithful to so many people in Scripture and so many people I know. This was not a surprise to him, so he will get me through. Or is your instinct to think, God, what is happening? And instead of going to the Word and God's promises and pleading to God based on the promises... You go to your works. Say, God, what is happening? I go to church. I tithe regularly. I'm generous with my money and my time. I'm consistent in prayer. I try to live a holy life. I try to repent before you and honor you with my life. Lord, I'm doing all these things. Where are you? And we'd never come out and say it. But what we're saying in those moments, what we're implying in those moments is, God, you owe me. I've done my part. Now you do yours thinking that God is in our debt. Brothers and sisters, if this pride, even an inkling of this pride is in your heart, repent. 
in my heart, repent. Because God owes us nothing. And we owe him everything. We need to repent of this kind of thinking. And we need to listen also to this correction in verse 14. Not just of our theology, but also of our living. Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of gratitude. And perform your vows to the Most High. Follow through on what you're going to do. On what you say you will do. Obey me. See what he's saying is, look, what I want from my people is grateful obedience. I don't need sacrifices. In fact, I'd prefer if we didn't have to have those at all. They're my provision for failure. They're my provision for sin. What I really want is what I told Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what I'm after at the end of the day. So don't just bring more sacrifices thinking now you're going to put me in your debt. No, bring a sacrifice of a grateful heart. That leads to obedience. Cultivate a heart of thanksgiving that leads you to do God's will. And how do we do that? Verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Here's that priestly voice. This is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Our day of trouble is the day we realize that we have fallen miserably short of the glory of God. That we have no resources and no ability to fix our own sin problem. We need a Savior outside of ourselves. We need someone to come to live and die in our place. To be righteous for us and to pay the debt that we owe on the cross. And then to raise from the dead so that we can be saved from the wrath to come. But we don't just need to look at Him once for that first moment of deliverance. We have this sinful flesh in us and we need to continually, continually look back to Jesus. Every day. Every second of every day in repentance. We look to Him for the deliverance from sin for the rest of our lives. And as the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, sanctifies us as we look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will work in us gratitude that leads to obedience. Until one day our struggle with sin will be over for good. See, God is saying, I don't need you. I don't need your sacrifices. But I want you. I want a relationship with you. And the way that works is that you look to Jesus in faith and in repentance. And then you honor me with grateful obedience. That's what God is calling us to. So we've seen the summons. We've seen God rebuking his covenant keepers. And now let's see God rebuking his covenant breakers in verse 16. And again, we get the description of who these covenant breakers are. Verse 16 says, But to the wicked, not my faithful ones, not my covenant people. He goes right after them, calls them what they are, to the wicked. God says, What right Have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? So these are the people that look like covenant keepers. They take God's covenant on their lips. They know God's statutes. Maybe they even have better theology than the first group. Maybe they get that part right. They claim to be among God's people. They do a lot of the right things on the outside. They're the type of people that would be baptized 
that are walking in faith and repentance, it seems to be on the surface until you look a little deeper. Because looks can be deceiving to all of us, but not to God. And he calls them covenant breakers. Verse 17. He says, for you hate discipline. You hold on to your sin. You hate correction. You don't want to repent. And you cast my words behind you. You ignore my law. You throw it off like it's nothing. All so you can keep on sinning. So you can continue in disobedience. See, you're not covenant keepers. You're Pharisees. Like in Jesus' day. You're hypocrites. See, we like to think the Pharisees were legalists. And at times they appear so. But they're really hypocrites. They say one thing and then do another. So Jesus says in Matthew 23... Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. These are the type of people that say, you know what? I want a relationship with God. I just don't care what he says. I don't care what he wants from me. Just try that, by the way, in any other relationship, especially in a marriage relationship. If I said to my wife, you know, I love you. I just don't care what you think. I don't want to listen to you. I don't even want to hear what you have to say. You know, I'll serve you. I will, but only when it's convenient for me. She would think that's ridiculous. And that thing looks really ugly on a human level. It looks even far more ugly when we do it to God. Their hypocrisy and their lawlessness is clear. Look at verse 18. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You think, what a clever person. What a good businessman. Maybe I can learn from... No, he's a thief. He's a cheat. He should not be held up. He should be condemned. And you keep company with adulterers. You're proving of adultery. You excuse lust. You welcome it even through crude jokes or maybe entertainment that normalizes sin or that objectifies people made in God's image. You're okay with adultery. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You don't hold back one word. In fact, you're comfortable with lies. And if you're honest, you probably think that lies are actually useful, helpful in getting what you want. Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. James tells us in James 3.10, from out of the same mouth, comes blessing, honor God, praising God, and cursing. Cursing our brother, made in God's image, one of God's covenant people. How can that be? How can that be for God's people? Because they're not covenant keepers. In fact, you might have noticed the whole way through, Jesus is rebuking them based on the Ten Commandments. Did you see that as we were going through? Verse 18, they broke the seventh and the eighth commandment, stealing and adultery, probably even coveting the 10th commandment as well. 
Verse 19, they broke the ninth commandment, bearing false witness against their brother. Verse 20, they broke the fifth and the sixth commandment, hating your neighbor, which is likened to murder, and not honoring your father and mother. They're guilty of the entire second table of the law from commandment six onwards, which means, by the way, they're also guilty of the first. They put other gods before God, namely themselves. And chased after idols. That's commandment one and two. They took God's covenant name upon their lips in vain. That's commandment number three. And they did not keep the Sabbath holy or honor the Sabbath because they came to worship without repentance. They came to worship and honor the Lord and hide everything else that's going on. That's commandment number four. See, God is saying, you are guilty of all of it. Every commandment you have broken, you have broken my covenant with me. And the reason for their rebellion is shocking. Look at verse 21 as God corrects their theology once again. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You see what God's saying here? You thought I was sinful and unjust and flippant and careless about my sin just like you. You thought I wasn't going to be bothered by your sin because you're not bothered by your sin. You presumed upon my grace. You assumed that in my silence I won't punish. I won't hold sinners to account. But I'm not like you. I am just. I am righteous. I am the perfect judge. I do not tolerate wickedness. I will hold sinners to account. And all you are doing for yourself is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And guess what? Judgment is here. I have come to call you to account. And maybe the most astonishing verse in the entire psalm, verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God. That is their sin, isn't it? In a nutshell, that's the sin of both of these groups. They forget who God is and what God calls them to. Mark this then, those of you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The incredible thing here is that God doesn't tear them apart. That God graciously warns them, calls them to repent, calls them to turn from their sin, to correct their theology, their false assumptions about him before it's too late, before he will tear them apart. And he shows them the correction. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to the one who orders his way rightly. In other words, the one who obeys. The one who follows and keeps his vows. I will show the salvation of God. I hope that sounds very familiar already. He corrected their bad theology. Their thoughts that I'm just like you, I'm sinful like you, but now he corrects their practice and says you need to repent with grateful obedience once again. 
You need to look to Jesus in faith who will wash away all of your sins, all of your pride, all of your hypocrisy, and he will give you a thankful heart that will motivate your obedience. Brothers and sisters, I have been praying all week for myself and for all of you that we take these words seriously. Because it is so easy to become a legalist. It's so easy to fall into a habit of obedience without gratitude. It's so easy to become a hypocrite, to get comfortable with sin, to excuse sin, to feel like you're convicted every week, sermon after sermon, passage after passage. The songs that we sing, you settle for conviction and never get to repentance. Never turn from the wickedness. You just feel you're doing some sort of penance by feeling bad for yourself. It's so easy to assume that God is just like us. He's careless about sin. He's dependent like us. And so we can just continue on in our sin. Brothers and sisters, if there's an ounce of this pride in any of us, may God give us a heart to repent. Hear these gracious words as a gracious rebuke from your heavenly Father, calling you to repent and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will give you what you need to trust and obey. Just like that wonderful hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let me pray. Father, it's hard to give thanks for difficult words, but it's right. Pray that you would build in us grateful hearts hopeful hearts, knowing that you are a good father that calls out our sin and won't leave us to our depravity because you want what's best for us and what will glorify you. So Father, help us receive these words with humility. Give us grace to walk in repentance so that we might glorify you and even as we imperfectly keep your covenant in repentance. Father, help us to praise you every step of the way because Christ has kept it perfectly for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.